Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. Today's show focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Jay Doherty. And here are this week's feature stories. LGBTQ plus rights have expanded greatly since the 1960s, in large part because of the gay rights movement born in New York City. In this month's installment of Fordham Conversations, WFUV's Isabel Danzis sits down with Fordham professor Edward Cahill. His debut book, Disorderly Men, focuses on the story of three men living in a pre-stone wall, New York City. Could you just maybe start by giving listeners maybe like a brief description or a brief summary of what they can expect to read about in Disorderly Men? So Disorderly Men uh, follows the lives of three men from different walks of life whose worlds are turned upside down when they are arrested uh, in, in the police raid of, of a gay bar. So they each respond differently to uh, being arrested uh, and their lives become intertwined and they get very, very complicated. And in short, they decide not to not to give in to the oppression that they face, but rather to face it and to fight back. Why is sharing stories like this so impactful and so important? Well, you know, so many of the stories that were told in the 1950s and 60s in that mid-century period involved gay protagonists who did not end up doing very well. Often they were dead by the end of the novel. So I definitely wanted to kind of rewrite that story where our protagonists are not only not dead, but also really um, finding their agency and their power and fighting back. And you mentioned this a little bit before, but each of the protagonists kind of have a very different life trajectory, you know, where they are in their life currently and kind of their goals for where they're ending up. Why did you kind of choose to focus on these three particular stories? In a lot of ways, it's a story about three different ways of living in the closet. Uh, and one character is is mostly on his way out of it, and the other character is very firmly inside it. Um, so I wanted to explore different ways of being in the closet, uh, and then the different psychologies that that involves, you know, in terms, especially the fear and the shame, and the way that these different characters respond or, or live with that fear and shame. It takes place in the 60s. Why is kind of focusing on a like a pre-Stonewall New York kind of an important time to highlight in, you know, the history of LGBTQ people in the city? Being queer in mid-century New York City or in mid-century America meant living in a very low information economy. People just didn't know very much. After Stonewall, there was a whole public discourse of homosexuality, of, of queerness, uh, there was organizing. There were groups that you could belong to. It was a political movement. So there was really very little information. There were there were very there was very little community. There simply wasn't a gay community the way there is now. So I wanted to find my characters in this low information economy. You know, it 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 was the kind of moment where a police raid headline that outed queer people and destroyed their lives because people thought, oh my gosh, you know, homosexuality that's so scary. We don't know anything about it. But in the same way, that's how gay people found out where the bars were from those newspaper, um, those newspaper raid headlines. You know, there's not very much information out there. And when you don't have information, you have to find it. Um, and part of the, 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 the quest of these characters is finding themselves by finding each other. This was, we, you know, it's pre-Stonewall. It was a while ago. But why is this story still important and still relevant in today's society and where we are when it comes to queer rights now? Well, you know, we have come so far and, uh, you know, it's it's so great that, you know, you can you can, you know, marry the partner of your choice in every state in the United States, um, that I can be openly gay at the place where I work. 
But as we know, a lot of those rights are being debated right now and uh, books are being banned and curricula is being restricted and uh, trans kids can't get the medical care that they want. So in a way, the, the controversies that we're facing right now, I think, actually make historical gay fiction seem a whole lot more contemporary. You know, the times are different um, and I think we have so much more freedom now, but fear and shame are still there. And a lot of people are still growing up in the closet. What do you hope um, people who read this book kind of take away from it? What message would you want to be communicated to them? I, I think I think one important message is that there are men and women who are still alive today who suffered incredibly uh, incredible amounts of of uh, oppression, um, and they did it almost entirely silently. Um, they didn't do it with very much sympathy. The characters in my novel would be old men today, uh, but they might still be alive. Um, this history is not that far from us. I was born in 1967. That's only five years after this novel takes place. So this is a recent history. That was WFUV's Isabel Danzis talking with Edward Cahill about his new book, Disorderly Men. Over the next few weeks, the WFUV Newsroom is speaking with organizations that promote mental health for teenagers in New York. This week, I talk with the Jed Foundation's Chief Medical Officer, Laura Erickson Schroth, about the work the organization is doing to prevent teen suicide by promoting emotional well-being. Can you provide an overview of the Jed Foundation's mission and the specific initiatives related to student mental health that your organization is involved in? So the Jed Foundation is a national nonprofit that protects emotional health and prevents suicide in teens and young adults. Jed was founded by a couple named Phil and Donna Saitow, who lost their son, whose name was Jed, to suicide while he was in college. Jed's comprehensive approach is an evidence-based model that helps schools to assess and strengthen their mental health and suicide prevention programs. Our signature programs, Jed Campus and Jed High School, are in over 520 high schools, colleges, and universities nationwide and reach 16% of the U.S. student population. And we recently entered a partnership with AASA, the Superintendents Association, to bring our comprehensive approach to pre-K to 12 school districts nationwide. How does the Jed Foundation address the mental health needs of students through after-school engagement and mentorship programs? So at Jed, we focus on impact. We make sure our programs work and that we're continuously updating them based on new research. Uh, we have a JED Campus Impact Report that was published in 2020, which is an evaluation of 56 schools that completed the JED Campus program from 2014 to 2020 and shows evidence of improvement uh, across programs, policies, and system change indicators that support and protect student mental health. 81% of Jed campuses screen students for depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts at campus health centers. That's up from 59% at the start of Jed campus. Jed offers scholarships every year to one high school and one college student who are doing outstanding work to support their peers' mental health. And their efforts could involve things like raising community awareness uh, for young adult mental health, reducing stigma encouraging their peers to reach out for support or creating a community of care on their own campuses. And the two students are also honored at Jed's annual gala in New York, and they received the Student Voice of Mental Health Award. Are there any specific challenges or trends in this area that you believe are particularly important to address? Yeah, it's important to address the reality of how young people are doing so that we can understand what work needs to be done. 
the percentage of high schoolers who report feeling persistently sad or hopeless has increased 14 percentage points from 28 to 42 percent over the last decade. 10 percent of high school students attempted suicide in the past year. And suicide's the second leading cause of death for young people 10 to 24. Young people are lonely and there's more attention being paid to youth mental health on a national level. National mental health organizations are coming together to work on youth mental health. The Surgeon General has had a focus on youth mental health and has been making it a national priority. How can WFUV listeners best support the Jed Foundation? If you're a school educator or administrator and you want to bring Jed to your high school, college, or university, you can visit jedfoundation.org to learn more or email us at info at jedfoundation.org. Young people and caregivers can learn more about youth mental health by accessing Jed's Mental Health Resource Center at jedfoundation.org. And we'd love your help supporting JED through fundraising efforts. We encourage individuals to have DIY fundraisers like movie nights, basketball games, 5K runs, and invite your loved ones to be involved and to donate to JED. Community fundraisers serve a dual purpose of bringing people together to have conversations about mental health. That was my co-host Jay Doherty talking with Laura Erickson Schroth with the JED Foundation. For more information about the organization's work promoting teen mental health, visit JED as in Delta Foundation.org. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every week for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast every weekday at 3 for the latest local news and feature stories from FUV. And as always, you can find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Jay Doherty. And that's What's What.